This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Stephanie Nakajima, us from the past. Uh, today, uh, we are talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. If you're listening to the podcast, I was using my air quotes, which was just signed into law by President Biden this past week. This was like last minute negotiations between Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. And the Senate finally, after some like really comical but also tragic failures over the past year, uh, passed a very, very scaled down version of the Build Back Better bill that I feel like we've been talking about for a year and a half now. Now, the IRA bill, I can't believe they call it this, clearly they you know, intensively focus group this title. It's, it's overwhelmingly a package of actually environmental policies, but it does include some healthcare provisions for Medicare recipients in particular. So she's already introduced herself, but joining us today in our Throwback Monday episode, Stephanie Nakajima, Executive Director of MassCare, the Massachusetts Campaign for Single-Payer Healthcare, former Director of Communications for Healthcare Now. So welcome back, Stephanie. It's very exciting to have you, especially since we did probably a lot of Build Back Better episodes together when you were the Director of Communications at Healthcare Now. So, but you know, before we get into the topic, Give us a little update. How are you doing? How's the new job? How are things at MassCare? Ooh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. Also a little bit afraid because I am totally out of the national scene and I have no idea what's going on. So if the live audience wants to like leave me any tips or like give me any <laughs> questions in the mm -hmm. chat, I'm looking and I'm ready to receive. So uh, it's going great at MassCare. I just got on the ballot in 20 state rep districts across the state. It's a non-binding ballot question. I did one of them, sort of, with a lot of help <laughs> from other activists. We won't talk about that on this podcast, but yes, Ben did help us with one where we have a rep that's not supporting Medicare for all, and Ben helped us to get on the ballot in that rep's district. I just moved into a non-supporting rep district, so now, finally, I can mm -hmm. uh, I can organize my rep, which has every been rep, so many years, yeah. <laughs> every rep's worst nightmare, Ben Day moving mm -hmm. into the district. She's really going to regret it. <laughs> And again, this is a non-binding ballot question, so it's not statewide. It doesn't mean that we're going to pass Medicare for All in the state if it passes in these districts. We unfortunately don't have that kind of money or volunteer power yet, but the point of doing the non-binding ballot question is that we will eventually build that kind of support that we need across the state. And so, you know, the, the point of this is to expand the support for Medicare for All, and also to, you know, there's some less lefty districts that we really need to work on the perceptions and the arguments for Medicare for All. And so we have a couple of those that are going to be like, you know, we really have to campaign to win a yes vote. So I'm excited about, nervous and excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I really love that most states, you can't do these super local non-binding ballot initiatives. 
But I think it's really cool. Um, everyone is going to be able to basically you get a question. Do you want your rep to support Medicare for all in the Massachusetts state legislature? And it's it's a really great way to push on your state rep or state senator if they've been troublesome or reluctant. And I think you know Massachusetts, like all states, just went through redistricting. So even the reps who have been on board, their whole districts have shifted now. Mm -hmm. And some of the reps who haven't been on board, maybe their district is now more supportive. So anyway, it's, it's pretty great to organize it. Yeah. And, you know, right now we've got 40% of the Massachusetts state legislature on the Medicare for All bill. So we are not quite yet to the majority point that California and New York state legislatures are at. But we are in striking distance and we want to enter the big leagues next season. That's my goal. And, you know, this is one of the ways that we're looking to work on some of those reps who haven't signed on yet, maybe don't know where even their constituents stand and, you know, also build that deep and wide power that will need to pass the statewide bill in Medicare for all. And by the way, I feel like I should mention that 20 districts is actually a mass care record for the number of ballot questions done at one time in mass care history. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. If only I could rub it in the face of the former executive director. You absolutely can. I, I, <laughs> I, when I was director of, of mass care, we got 10 in 2008 and then 14 in 2010. So I'm somewhat ashamed that in your first like eight months at MassCare, you've already almost surpassed both of those election cycles. <laughs> ben, you did your best. I did, but I'll, I love it. It's great for the movement. So let's hit like 50 next, next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're gonna be responsible for 10 of those, Ben, next time. <laughs> One was almost more than I could handle. All right, so to the matter hand, but I love starting off with actually kind of an organizing victory, which is the ballot initiative campaign. So before before we get into the the nuts and bolts of this bill, Stephanie, I have to get your take on the title of the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh goodness! Which might be confusing to many people and is a long shot off from Build Back Better. <laughs> So I am sadly one of those people that gets a lot of their news from Twitter and taking a mental health break from Twitter for about a week, I came back and found everybody debating Bernie Sanders' spicy take on the IRA, right. <laughs> in my day, the Irish Republican Army, and I thought, oh, okay, this is where the revolution is now. Things are moving fast. <laughs> we had to get here one day. But yeah, I mean, I think the idea of reframing this Build Back Better as an inflationary reduction thing, like somehow after like, you know, a million deaths from COVID, inflation is our biggest problem, you know, and not the fact that we, our planet is burning and that we still don't have a functional healthcare system up and running for the next pandemic that we're going to face. Yeah, and people may know this already, but clearly this was messaging and reframing to get Joe Manchin's vote. He was the single vote preventing Build Back Better from happening. Well, maybe a little bit also with Kirsten Cinema, but he was the main one that kind of defeated this and kept re-engaging with the negotiations and then like turning and flipping on them again and changing his mind. And he's like, oh no, I'm not gonna do it now. I'll, I'll do it. No, I'm not gonna do it now. And his latest thing was that he didn't wanna pass anything because of inflation. And he had to wait to see the new inflation numbers for August before he supported anything. So uh, without changing anything in the bill, they're like, oh, we'll just name it the Inflation Reduction Act, and then we'll get uh, Joe Manchin's vote. Apparently that was enough, and it kind of worked. But apparently, no one no one thought about the acronym, like the IRA acronym. Like, what, what a 
What a bunch of clowns. <laughs> and really, inflation just seems like ruling class panic over workers having a little bit of leverage right now in the labor market. Yeah, I mean, inflation is a problem for workers, obviously, too, just the cost if your wages are not keeping up. But yeah, that's that's the reason why the bosses are worried about it. So yeah. Yeah. All right. So should I talk a little bit about the, I guess, should we sort of zoom back to build back better a little bit? Yeah, it's really, it was actually, I didn't make the direct connection that this bill was actually the next thing that happened after or that build back better had sort of morphed into this right, yeah. <laughs> build back better was destroyed, right. By Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and of course every Re Republican in Congress. And I think maybe we should just recap what that bill was all about. Cause it's basically ancient history politically. Right. And this is going to be a little sad to go over because this, you know, the build back better bill passed the house and it was close to passing in the Senate before Manchin lost his shit and Sinema started tanking the bill. But remember that the Build Back Better was actually a pretty transformational bill in terms of American social policy if it had passed. It had this massive child tax credit of up to $300 per child. It had massive child care subsidies, free universal preschool. All of that is gone from this Inflation Reduction Act. It had the first paid family leave provision, up to four weeks of paid family leave. That's gone from the Inflation Reduction Act. It tripled the earned income tax credit for low-income people. That's out. That's gone. And of course, a lot of it was paid for by taxes on the wealthy, most of which are also gone. But the tiny pieces of Build Back Better that have been preserved and repackaged into this Inflation Reduction Act are mostly the environmental provisions. Again, they were stronger in Build Back Better, but a lot of them actually did survive in the in this IRA bill. And then we had fought really hard to get some healthcare provisions into, especially for Medicare, into the Build Back Better bill. We had some success, not as much as we wanted, but even less of that was included, unfortunately, in this latest version. So Yeah, I remember that we'd been fighting for four major things regarding healthcare under- Our four demands. Four demands. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I remember. Under this bill which would have been game-changing for us if we had gotten them. First one was letting Medicare negotiate prescription drug cost, which would save billions of dollars and then also be used to justify expanding Medicare in several ways, which would include lowering the eligibility age of Medicare to 60 or you know as low as we can get it. Of course, giving traditional public Medicare enrollees, so not private Medicare enrollees, but the public and Medicare enrollees, an out-of-pocket cap, like most private insurance already has. And finally, adding dental, vision, and hearing benefits to Medicare. I think one of, you know, one of the emails that I sent that I could not believe the response that we got to just immediately as soon as it was sent out was asking people about, you know, whether or not not having dental and Medicare really affected them. And the answer was overwhelmingly both shocking and disturbing. We got stories of people who were surviving on applesauce because right. they couldn't fix their teeth. They couldn't eat anything. And so, uh, yeah, those were the four things that we we were hoping to get under Build Back Better, which would have been incremental by Medicare for all standards, but they would have actually been incremental changes that would have brought us towards a Medicare, would have actually expanded the Medicare program to look more like Medicare for all the kind of incrementalism that we want. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. It would have been things that we're going to have to win to win Medicare for all anyway, right? We're going to, and that, this was eye-opening when we saw how powerful the dental lobby is, actually. So this is like, note to self, we're going to have to go up against the dental lobby to win Medicare for all as well. So in terms of those four things that we were fighting for, and we, we got significant amounts of them into the, the Build Back Better bill, not again, not all of them, especially not lowering the age of Medicare, which would have been really phenomenal. But here's what did get into the healthcare parts that actually got into the Inflation Reduction Act that were you know, not exactly what we we're fighting for, but most of them are related to what we were fighting for, like very scaled down versions. So the IRA, I, I still can't get over saying this acronym, the, the IRA does allow uh, Medicare for the first time to negotiate the prices of some prescription drugs. It starts with just 10 drugs in 2025, but then it goes up to 20 drugs in 2029. And there's one thing I, I don't know the answer to yet. I need to clarify. We had similar language in the Build Back Better bill, but it was cumulative. So it was like 10 drugs in 2024, then another new 10 drugs in 2025, and then another 10 drugs in 2026. And then when you get up to that 20 drugs in 2029, you're already adding to. So you get up to, you know, 100 or 200 drugs. But, you know, that is still a far cry from being able to negotiate all prescription drug costs, which all in private insurance companies are allowed to do and Medicare should be able to do as well. And that's just totally wild. Yeah, I mean, just for reference, Medicare covers over 3,500 drugs. So the number of drugs that Medicare has now been enabled to negotiate is less than a half of 1%. Of oh, the power, the power. <laughs> drug and negotiating power. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, even if we were to add another 10 drugs every year or something, I mean, Elon Musk is going to be colonizing Jupiter by the time. <laughs> right. Actually right. All of them underneath Medicare negotiations. So. And the sad thing is like the Congressional Budget Office still estimates just those 10 or those 20 is going to lead to billions and billions of dollars in savings. So, I mean, imagine what you could save if, if Medicare was allowed to negotiate all drug costs and what you could do with that extra money. And you could probably do all the things that we were fighting for originally, lowering the age of Medicare, dental, vision, hearing, and so on and so forth. So uh, again, this is kind of going to be the theme for all the thing, healthcare things we talk about in the IRA. Very, very scaled down, kind of a little bit sad uh, what we won, but some of them are going to have real impacts on patients. So I'll, I'll go into some of these. So, you know, again, we had tried to fight for an, a general out-of-pocket cap for Medicare recipients. I mean, the cap should be zero. That's what Medicare for all is. But what did make it into the IRA is two very specific kind of limited caps. First, uh, there's an out-of-pocket prescription drug cap of $2,000 per year. That's obviously way too high, but prescription drug copays and drugs not covered by Medicare can really cripple the budget of seniors. We hear, we hear about this all the time. So $2,000 is something. It's something of a cap. And then the other really important cap is that it caps insulin spending at $35 per month. You know, anyone who has diabetes, the out-of-pocket expenses can just go through the roof and can really cripple your budget. And I can't tell you how many how many folks tell us about, you know, rationing insulin usage or skipping doses, and then they end up with really, really serious issues down the road, which of course Medicare has to pay for, so it doesn't make any sense to be skipping at the beginning. Now, the original Inflation Reduction Act actually had insulin cap for all Americans, not just people in Medicare, but even people with private insurance. But then the fucking Senate, the Senate parliamentarian 
ruled that that could not be included in this bill because this is a budget only bill. It's called a reconciliation bill. So you're only allowed to do things that have to do with like federal spending and federal taxation. So they said, you know, this is regulating the private industry. You're not allowed to do that. So the Democrats said fine, and they they still included it in the bill, and they made Republicans vote on it. Um, and they got seven Republican senators to vote yes for limiting insulin spending for the private sector. But then, you know, of course, 43 Republicans voted against it, and that's not enough to overcome a filibuster. So all these Republicans are now on record voting against limiting insulin caps. I hope those motherfuckers get this used against them in campaign advertisements very, very soon. And then the other thing... Well, just to not be a Debbie Downer about this whole mm -hmm. insulin thing, I do think it's great that we are creating these standards in Medicare and relieving for patients who need insulin on Medicare. But I also just want to point out that the people who really struggle to afford insulin are those who don't have insurance at all or are very poorly insured and have really large deductibles. And so, you know, while this is absolutely a step in the right direction, I'm not sure that it's going to affect the people who are hardest hit by insulin costs either. Yeah, it'll help you if you're poor and on Medicare, but it will not help you if you're poor and not on Medicare, uh, which is a lot of people. So yeah, the final two healthcare pieces of this bill that passed and again, you know, this was uh, not actually one of the priorities that we were fighting for, but during a, the COVID relief bill that was passed by the House and the Senate really early on in the COVID pandemic, they had expanded the ACA subsidies. So you could get subsidies a little bit, you know, in the exchanges, you get subsidies at a little bit higher income levels and the subsidies were a little bit better at all income levels. And, but those were going to expire at the end of this year. So this new bill now extends that for another three years through the end of 2025. Um, and again, that's not as good as Build Back Better. Build Back Better, I think, was going to indefinitely fund those, and that's gone. And of course, unfortunately, there's zero dental, vision, or hearing benefits included now under this IRA bill, which, as you mentioned, some of the most horrifying stories we heard from Medicare recipients were the total lack of dental, vision, and hearing benefits so that's this is not going to help at all with that, which is kind of a loss. So, Stephanie, now obviously some of these things are like they're really going to help people, especially with certain you know diabetics, could really be transformative for folks with tons of prescription drugs. But it also feels kind of like a failure compared to what we had gotten built back better. Never mind compared to what we were fighting for. Never mind compared with Medicare for all. What was you, what was your kind of feeling in general when you took in this? what ended up in the bill? I mean, it still just has that ACA style way of funneling more money to insurance companies. So, you know, the money that they're giving out is actually to insurance companies to, you know, for these subsidies for people. So propping up private insurance with public money, one of the things that Democrats love doing, and the parts where they're actually, you know, better utilizing public funds, which, you know, I am really excited about. Um, this does mark a transition from a period where Medicare could not negotiate drug prices at all to one where it does. And that in itself, even if it's just 10 drugs, is still really cracking open a door that pharma wanted to keep closed. Now that door is open. Now we do have more opportunity to negotiate more. I mean, hopefully we will go faster than 10 drugs a year in the future. But 
I, I or 10 drugs every what five years? <laughs> what was the yeah. So um so I do think you know that that is important, but I of course generally the the approach to this bill was definitely to prop up the private insurance industry and not expand, not give vision, not give dental, not make better the public plan, which we're going to need to do if Medicare is ever really going to truly be for all. Yeah, I, I had similar mixed feelings. You're, you're totally spot on about the, you know, this is like the ACA model of like, spend more money, and then the healthcare industry gets more money, and then the healthcare industry is not going to fight the bill, which is like a, you know, you can continue to expand benefits that way and just uh, say, okay, we're just committing to healthcare costs going up and up and up and up and up every year. And we're going to pay more and more and more and more, which is just not sustainable. We know it's not sustainable, but it, it reflects the general cowardice of Congress being unwilling to take on the healthcare industry, even sort of one branch of the healthcare industry in a significant way. And we're going to have to do that to get Medicare for all, but honestly, you're going to have to do it to do anything with cost control which is the, the big thing that Congress is like incapable of doing at the moment without probably a huge social movement to push it. So I totally agree with that. And at the same time, you know, the expansions are really important for certain groups and we're going to need to have that, you know, Medicare for all style bill. And uh, there's a question also in the, the chat section from Christine asking, uh, did Medicare always take money out of social security people receive? Will that continue to increase in the coming years? I think she's referring to how your Medicare premiums will often be deducted from your Social Security check income. So I think that does continue. And obviously, the amount it is depends on how big the Medicare premium is. We just did a whole episode, Christine, recently about how Medicare uh, was thinking of covering one new drug, one new Alzheimer's drug that actually hadn't even been proven to work. And it led to a massive, massive increase in the premium of Medicare. And then after that huge increase that Medicare recipients had to pay for, they decided not to cover the drug after all under Medicare. And then they didn't issue a refund to Medicare recipients. So that's a huge problem. I don't think this bill is going to do anything to help with, you know, Medicare premiums or, or costs or deductibles potentially going up over time. But we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And any new news, we'll, we'll let you know when we, we have our next episode. So... Yeah, so I do think that even though in terms of healthcare, the IRA bill is a bit of a mixed bag, but there are, especially the climate provisions, I think, are truly good enough to justify the existence of this bill. <laughs> you know, the bill is mostly about centered around environmental spending. And Ben, what do you think? Is this a win for our movement as well? Yeah, I think so. It, it, as you're saying, the environmental wins are way better than the healthcare wins, I think. And the, the vast majority, just in terms of money in the bill, is, is about environmental policy. And as we often talk about, every time we give like a Medicare for All talk, we always like mm -hmm. to back up and say, all right, before we get into healthcare at all, we know that research shows that your health outcomes are not impacted that much by healthcare, which is counterintuitive. We kind of think that the most important thing for how healthy we are over the course of our life and how long we live is our access to healthcare and how good the healthcare is we get. Actually, that's not true. The things that impact your health the most are actually your, the environment you live in, your income level and sort of how you perceive your own status in society, your housing security, your experiences with racism and microaggressions, other forms of bigotry and so on. 
things that we talk about that folks refer to as the um, often called the social determinants of health. These things have a far, far more dramatic impact on your health outcome than access to healthcare. So obviously the environment is a huge one of these pieces that goes into it. So I do think that the environmental wins in the bill are kind of a collective health justice win. You know, we are part of the healthcare justice movement, which is part of the broader health justice movement. So I think this is like a big solidarity win. So, you know, very briefly, what's in the bill is, you know, there's over $300 billion invested in energy and climate reform. This is like far and away the biggest, you know, federal clean energy, energy investment in US history. That's still a little bit less than was in Build Back Better, unfortunately, but it's it's quite a big number still. There's huge tax credits for, for individuals to you know, invest in solar panels and electric vehicles, um, as well as you know, electric infrastructure uh, around the country. There's big taxes against methane and onshore oil and gas extraction. The bill is estimated to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 40%, which is kind of close-ish to the Biden goal of 50%. So again, we're, we're, we're not making as much progress even on environmental goals and benchmarks as we have to be making, but it, it's, it's way more progress than I think most people felt we could squeeze out of Congress at this particular moment. So that's, you know, that's not a nothing burger when it comes to like environmental impacts. Um, and I should mention before I get too glowing about the environmental parts, that there are some shitty short-term provisions that mention squeezed into it that like, instruct the Interior Department to uh, create more federal land and offshore land available to oil and gas producers. I think there's stuff to like ease the regulatory process for gas pipelines and stuff like that. This is something West Virginia is like really into. So there's some really shitty stuff that will actually increase the bad, you know, fossil fuel type stuff in the short term, but it should be offset more by the, the positive stuff for clean energy on the other end of things. So I, I don't know, Stephanie, do you feel like this is also like, do you feel like the environmental parts are going to have a really direct impact on people's health outcomes? Oh, man. I, In addition I, to saving the planet, I mean, saving the planet is kind of important too. I don't want to minimize that. But since we're a healthcare podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just don't think we can emphasize enough how much your environment and all different other kinds of things actually affect your health more so than even access to healthcare. Uh, one of the things, you know, I, the most obvious examples of this is air pollution. So there's obviously, uh, there's some great studies that show that the your proximity of your residence to like a major road determines like how likely you are to have asthma and how likely that asthma is to be severe. And so that's actually not just in a climate justice thing with air pollution, but also just like a racial justice thing as, you know, there's and a class yeah. justice thing. When you think about who actually does end up living uh, near these like large major roads. And yeah. so I think- I know that Boston, along with a lot of cities have regulations on diesel vehicles just because of that. So much of the asthma inducing exhaust from diesel vehicles is like really, really worse than regular gas vehicles. So I think, if this bill can really accelerate the shift towards electric vehicles, that's really, really going to help with, with a, like you were saying, especially asthma and the sort of, uh, sit, you know, urban pollution impacts on health. Huh. That's so fascinating. Cause I, you know, just in Europe and we were talking about why does Europe have all these diesel vehicles? Cause you can still drive a car with yeah. diesel. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know that diesel was actually burning dirtier 
than yeah, gas. Go with the program, Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. And another thing that people don't think about very often is that, you know, with higher temperatures come more uh, mosquitoes and ticks, which spread, you know, those, those vector-borne diseases that can really shorten lifespans, especially in the developing world. And so, you know, over, I think, all over the globe, there's going to be, if we can actually rein in climate change, then we can also improve the health of the people who are living on the planet. Yes. And as a dog owner, the... Uh... The, the rising temperatures increase the ticks, which are vector-borne, and then your dog is the tick vector for bringing no! the ticks directly to you and your couch. So good thing they're cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's actually, I, I mean, we can't get into it here, but there's, there's a ton of links between sort of global warming and your direct health impacts. Um, I mean... You know, I, we were both trapped in, in Europe during this heat wave, and you know they, they really don't have the cooling infrastructure that a lot of the United States has, like no air conditioning and buses or trains in most people's houses. I we didn't I didn't even have a fan in the apartment I was staying in, and it hit 102 degrees Fahrenheit. So obviously, you know, growing heat waves like this lead to thousands and thousands of deaths. You know. Uh, cardiovascular issues, uh, heat stroke, heat stress, all that stuff is really, really bad. We see, we see it even more in Europe than we do in the United States where in, you know, in parts of the country where it's like you're a little bit more prepared for heat waves, but even here it's, it's, it can be really deadly. And like all plagues, it affects those who are least equipped to deal with it. Yeah, we spent a whole day in the IKEA because it was the only <laughs> air-conditioned location in all of Hamburg, Germany. <laughs> So, Eating your climate change-inducing meatballs. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or whatever else we had there. It, that was a very weird day. I never thought I would spend a day in IKEA, in IKEA cafeteria watching people go up and down the yellow escalators. So glad you just got to experience <laughs> a little European culture. Yeah, yeah. If that's what you want to call that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this was a this is mixed bag episode, I guess. Um, I think we should t take some credit because especially the Medicare expansion stuff, that wasn't on the table at all. Biden didn't push for that. The Democratic Party didn't really push for that. That was the Medicare for All movement that pushed that whole thing. And we obviously didn't get nearly as extensive Medicare expansion as we hoped for. But the caps that are in there and the drug price negotiation, thats I think we get to take credit for that. So let's let's call it a very partial, cautious win here. And I think a much, much bigger win in terms of allied health justice movement, environmental movement. So congrats to everyone who fought more directly on the environmental pieces, which was not us, but we're really happy to be sort of part of that broader movement. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have our foot in the door now with drug negotiation for Medicare. That's something. And I think that we can use that and push on that door now and, you know, just keep it introduce another bill next year that expands it to 50 drugs or 100 drugs or whatever and just keep the pressure on because this is this is popular today and it will continue to be massively popular and it just needs somebody to push our legislators on. Right. And to remind folks that who may have forgotten, you know, during this whole Build Back Better fight, we got a lot of representatives and senators to sign on to like lowering the age of Medicare, expanding Medicare who are not Medicare for all supporters which is a little weird to me since the principles are so similar for like dramatically expanding public insurance coverage. It's like, why would you just not want to expand that to everyone? 
And that list of reps and senators is kind of our next priority mm-hmm. target list for organizing work. So it's really going to help us figure out where to invest our resources and our organizing in this next legislative session. And it's also going to help during the elect- the midterm elections, which are going to, uh, especially after Labor Day, kind of take over everything. And we're going to shift at Healthcare Now from towards pushing candidates to support Medicare for All, whether they're sitting legislators or not. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be the next. We're going to have an exciting new campaign also, a pledge campaign for candidates to take. So we'll get back to some organizing stuff soon. I'm so sad I'm only on the podcast now and not doing the organizing work. No, oh, more. You'll have to do it in Massachusetts. So you'll be working on Massachusetts candidates, right. I'm sure. I'll have to do it here then. All right. Well, I want to end by thanking our wonderful, amazing podcast team. Our podcast manager is Angelique Davis. Our researcher for this episode was Lindsay Beige. Our show notes writer was Jerry Katz. And our audio editor was Arena Budanova. Thanks so much to them. We could not do this without them. And we look forward to talking to you all in a couple of weeks. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye.